Thank you for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly, tribal animals. And when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name or at minimum by face, we are collaborative enough to sustain everyone with the bare essentials of nutritious food, warm shelter, health care, and education provided with dignity, respect, kindness, and love. Today, we are bringing you another in our series called Confessions of Psychedelic Elders. In this series, prominent people in the sciences and arts are going to reveal to you, our listeners, and the world, details of their courageous sub rosa self-experimentation with psychedelics over the past decades. My purpose in creating this series is to counter the decades of disinformation about psychedelics and inform the world that prominent good citizens, contributory citizens, patriots, solid fathers and mothers have risked their careers and their livelihoods in order to learn from psychedelics and advanced science. Our distinguished guest today is Dr. Dean Adele a pioneer in the field of health broadcasting, and my very inspiration for this program. I was inspired by Dean Adele because he had the courage to speak to America with the truth, integrity, and warmth that many of us valued in our doctors. Listeners called in with questions, and they received from Dean straightforward, honest answers And when he did not know an answer, he said so. And then he said he would find out. And he did. Dr. Dean Adele actually requires very little introduction for his syndicated radio program aired live for 31 years from 1979 to 2010 and was the second most listened to radio talk show in America for much of the 1990s. The program was also syndicated on over 200 radio stations across the country. His television program, Dr. Dean, aired on NBC beginning in 1992. Going back, Dr. Dean's medical CV included an MD from Cornell University Medical School in 1967, a private ophthalmology practice in San Diego, and a teaching position in anatomy at UC San Diego, all before leaving the practice of medicine in the 1970s to pursue his true love of communication information. During the 1970s, Dr. Dean lived in a vintage bus as a hippie, experimenting with different lifestyles, including organic farming, painting, and the topic of this morning's broadcast, psychedelic exploration. Later, after starting a jewelry and antique shop, in order to supplement his income, Dean served as medical director of the Sacramento County Alcohol and Drug Rehabilitation Center. A co-worker introduced him to the owner 
of a small music station where he would begin his career as the online, I mean, on air, actually, in those days, personality that America grew to know and love. Concerned with declining scientific literacy in the United States, he railed against pseudoscience and magical thinking, fad diets, and unproven healing methods, while promoting research into the therapeutic use of marijuana and psychedelic drugs. And this was way back. In 2010, Dean retired from media broadcasting and now lives in rural Mendocino County. I am deeply honored to have my neighbor, a fellow member of a growing tribe of psychedelic elders, Dr. Dean Adele, here today. Thank you for joining me today, Dean. Well, my pleasure, Richard. That was quite an introduction. You've done your homework. I forgot I forgot half of that stuff myself. <laughs> well, I've been a I've been a fan of yours for for decades, literally. And and I was not exaggerating when I said that that, that you've been my my inspiration. Uh Well, that I actually uh, I, it makes me really feel good. I like to f- feel that you know, the beat goes on, you know, as as I fade fade into dust, and that oh, we continue to try to help people understand this very complex world, and it's gotten it's gotten worse in a way. In some ways, it's been a very confusing period we're coming out of, and and dealing with what the whole world has had to deal with in the last uh, year, where science has had to come up against you know oh, uh, rampant rampant rumor and uh, people who just are are not sure that. Um, what we do and what objective reasoning is is about, and it's has been uh, quite quite an experience, quite an experience for all of us. So you're you're in the front lines, you know. I just think being able to talk to people um, the way you do in large groups is uh, is the only way we can fight back and encourage people to try and think clearly and navigate their way through existence. So here we are. Yes, and for so many years in your career, Dean. You railed against pseudoscience, as I said in my introduction, and against these fad diets and against these quick fixes and so on. And now, as you just pointed out, we've gone through a period where even more confusion has been put out to the American public, where we had this terrible period where the scientists in our, in our government were saying one thing and the president of the United States was saying something else, and and uh, and now we have conflict in the country. We have a, a percentage of the people who still, uh, for political reasons, do not want to cooperate with dealing with the pandemic. It's uh, it's quite a situation, isn't it? Yes, it's it's extraordinary. It is extraordinary at the height of our technological powers, and not that science is right all the time, or always does the the best. Um, for us, um, we have reg- we have we have regressed, and I, I uh, you know, everybody's trying to put their finger on how and why it's so f- and so forth, and it's it's complicated. But um, by the same token, you know, we've seen that uh, belief and people can be people can be so easily misled. I guess is what happens. They don't know where authority lies, and we've learned to see something on television. And no, therefore, it must be true. When I first started out 
in the early days in medicine, it was a patient bringing in a copy of Time magazine and said, look, it says this in the magazine, and you'd have to counter that. Nowadays, we have a force in our lives that is at once miraculous as well as potentially dangerous, and that's the Internet. And I remember in the beginnings of this and wondering, gosh, we the world's information is at people's fingertips. This has got to be a good thing. And, of course, and then there were those who would use and manipulate this powerful force to mislead people for their own, uh, their own purposes. And so we have this situation uh, on the ground right now, and yet we, you know, I, listening to your, your beginning, you know, community, uh, we kind of have to pull together through this, <laughs> through this one, and we've become divided. And yet, when it comes to, let's say, a pandemic, you know, we have to do things for our fellow man. It's not all selfish. It's not all about us. And so this whole business about taking care of ourselves, wearing masks, etc., to protect other people. And now we're fighting to get to this magic point of, quote, herd immunity, that <laughs> if we don't get there, you know, we're going to be costing some people their lives because we won't be able to get rid of this virus or knock it back to a degree where it doesn't have an effect uh, upon us. So when I see people who refuse to participate, you know, it's their freedom to say not wear masks. Well, I don't know where where the rest of our, where is the rest of our freedom to be healthy and to trust our fellow man to do the right thing, so we can uh, we can all fight this. And it is remarkable, uh, you know, where 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 it's gone. And you know, Richard, when the pandemic first started to happen, there were a few people, uh, you know, I know in quote the business who asked if I wanted to go back on the air and and. Um, and uh, try to be a voice for rationality. And, oh, I thought long and hard about that. And I just, you know, I just said, I don't know. This is, this is not going to be a straightforward thing like it used to be. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't easy even in the, in the old days, you know, because I, I, um, it's, some things are just not clear. Some things science just doesn't know the answer, you know, and you can't, and you can't have an answer. But this thing, uh, you know, the, the politics of it is what was very, very discouraging. And that made me fearful, and it turned out, you know, I was kind of right. So here we here here we are trying to pick up the pieces, and uh, we're hopefully turning a corner. Uh, but that's uh, here, and the rest of the world, you know, our, the rest of our community uh, of human beings, you know, not doing so well in some places, and that can affect all of us. If if some if countries out there uh, maintain a hotbed of this particular virus and its further mutations, then we're threatened. Again, because we didn't pull together and didn't do what was best for the entire community of the world. So these are very, very tricky times. What can I say? The, uh, this issue of community is paramount for me, Dean, because on the yes. one hand, you and I live in a, in a wonderful community where there's a tremendous amount of cooperation, as you know. Uh, I was involved in, in starting something here on the North Coast called the COVID Response Network. Uh, which if you are not familiar with, you might check out on Google. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we managed very early on in the pandemic to, to get people to mask up and socially distance. And as a result, our local hospital, which expected to be overrun, uh, Dr. William Miller was on the program here a few weeks ago, and he said they fully expected to be way overrun. And we never even got to full occupancy because I be- we did a focus group and we achieved 96 percent cooperation with locals with regard to masking and social distancing. 
And that is really phenomenal. And it's, it's a huge amount of cooperation. But as you know, at the very same time, on the national level, we still have uh, a significant percentage of people who are both refusing to mask up and socially distance and now are refusing also uh, to get vaccinated. Uh, you, you've been in retirement now for, I believe, about 10 or 11 years. Um, isn't that correct? Since 2010? Yes, yeah, yep, I have. Yeah. What do you do? I must. Um, Say it again. Uh, well, I, I mean, I'm aware of how uh, in, in, almost inordinately hard you worked for 30 or 40 years because I do this program once a week. You did your program five days a week for that entire time. It's a phenomenal piece of work. I, people have no idea how much work is involved in, in broadcasting five days a week. I, I am just uh, you know, so impressed. And then I know you mentioned to me when we were talking off air that you broadcast for 10 years right from your home here in Mendocino County. Yes. Um, you know, I, I dropped out of medicine in the old days, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out, you know, you know, that routine. I do. And um, I walked out of my, uh, I had a surgical subspecialty practice and eye surgery, as you mentioned, and I was kind of unhappy with it. And I thought I'd just take a break. You know, uh, a medical career requires, you know, arduous year after year after year. So I had spent 12 years every year knowing where I was going to be and what I was going to do. I just thought I'd just popped out for a little bit of freedom and bought that bus. And um, I um, really didn't think I would ever go back to medicine. I, I, I didn't really want to. There was, a, there was a flaw in the whole way it was practiced. And it was like eight years later, really, that I wound up serendipitously um, as you mentioned, meeting this person in the what we euphemistically would call the drunk take back in Sacramento, I had a cousin at a radio show and thought but I, um, I I spoke English and not medicalese, and <laughs> and that and that began uh, began all that. It was out of the blue, un, uh, unexpected. Uh, I, at that point, I found I was able to go back to my original love in medicine was the information and uh, and the knowledge. I was interested in that the system. You know, beat it out of me. You know, the the humanity, uh, the human being, uh, was not a thing that was easy to attain um, professionally. Um, as a physician, the, the you know the system, the processing, the paperwork, etc. But all of a sudden, when this came along, and I've been away from medicine for seven, eight years, when that when this job opportunity came up, hey, let's try it on the air for a night. I I ran over to UC Davis and uh, went to the bookstore. And I bought a pile of textbooks on internal medicine, and I was going to retrain myself right in a couple in a couple of weeks. Um, it was uh, hopeless at that particular point, but I renewed my love of the information and the knowledge, and and that was uh, such a blessing for me. Um, and it became automatic. I mean, I couldn't quite believe I fell into that. I, I, I said, "They're going to they're going to pay me to to talk." Yeah, I know how to do that. <laughs> and then the love what? of information. Um, followed, and I, pres uh, I subscribed to you know multiple medical journals. I became an avid reader during medical school. I wasn't really the most devoted student. Medical school is about survival, and anyway, I um, I love the information. And yes, there's a lot. Of people do not appreciate how much work goes into this, into well, just launching Dean, a radio show every day or or, really? or once a week. When you started out, 
Was it immediately a listener call-in show, or did you just talk to begin with, and then they started calling in? How did the yeah, listeners good call question. in? That was 19, uh, yeah, 1979, and it was a country music station right. in Sacramento, and they arranged for uh, a call-in for people to call in. Now, I don't know if you can imagine being away from medicine for that length of time. I'm about to take phone calls on any subject having to do with medicine, and I was scared to death. My heart Oh, my pounding. gosh in my oh. chest and i'll tell you something that was just um you know <laughs> here's a story that'll make you believe in god <laughs> and the very uh, that's the first quite a caller, trick. <laughs> yeah the first uh, the first caller out of the box asked me a question that really only an eye surgeon would know how to answer and they were attempting to bust me they said oh so you're so smart and you think you can answer all these questions so tell me Tell me, Doc, and ask me a very sophisticated um, eye surgery question. Really? I knew the answer to that, and my heart just leapt at that particular uh-huh, point. Uh-huh. And, you know, because I, I survived that, let's say, and it was downhill uh, downhill from there. But, yeah, there's, you know, as Johnny Carson once said, it's harder to do a show once a week than it is every day. So you might think about that, Richard. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, if Charlie Dice and David Springer are listening in right now, <laughs> we'll, uh, because I couldn't do a thing without my producer and my IT guy. Uh, I would oh, certainly, yes, of course. You know, well, as I say, following you as my inspiration, I would be. I would be willing to consider it, and I have been told that also. Actually, my neighbor in Tiburon uh, was David was Michael Savage. And, uh, oh, you're kidding. No, he was my next-door neighbor, and he said the exact same thing. He said, Richard, if you want to go somewhere in radio, you've got to do five days a week. You're never going to get anywhere, to, you know, just uh, one day a week because you don't build any momentum. I understand that. Yes. So, well, as you know, Michael used to broadcast out of, uh, out of KGO you know, in, our, in San Francisco. Oh, and, yes. Uh, so now I know where he used to live. <laughs> That's where he lived. So now – You've been, you've been retired for, for 10 years. You're about 80 years old now, correct? Yep. Yep. I just had my, I just had my 80th birthday a few weeks ago and it was, uh, it was glorious. Although it's, it gets you to start thinking. <laughs> what, what is your birthday? March 26th. My birthday is March 29th. My oh, wife, you're kidding. My wife's birthday is March 21st. I met her on my birthday, March 29th. We were married on March 25th. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> and you're presently you're presently married, and you're living with uh, Sharon, I believe. Yes, that's right. We've been together 30, uh, 30 years, and I'm not afraid to admit to you something that she is my uh, my fifth wife, and I finally finally got it right. Finally got it right. I uh, I went to a boy all boys school in high school. I think that's where the problem started. <laughs> where was that? In New Jersey. Well, I'm going to share something with you. I mm-hmm. am Jolie is my fourth wife, and I finally got it right. And I went to an all boys high school in Manhattan, Stuyvesant High School, and I think that's where my difficulty came from. Uh, you went to Stuyvesant, yes. <laughs> Well, you know, and, and all, all kidding aside, I, I, um, I was terribly, I mean, I, I'm a child of, of a, you know, I was born in 41, obviously, and um, I don't know, if you kissed a girl, you married her in those days, you know? <laughs> that's, all, that's, all, that's all I can remember. Oh, that's very funny. Very funny, Richard. Yes. Well, I've never, I'm extraordinarily happy. A, a good relationship is, uh, is primary, I think. 
Well, we came uh, out of the uh, same. We came out of the same era. I graduated from Stuyvesant in 1955. You must have been right around that time. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Well, that is, that that's it. And, and you know, finding finding this part of the country. You know, I came up here as a as a hippie in a bus. You know, and um, found this little town back in the in the 70s and I had to leave in 79 to um, take up the career that I that I had and, uh, and when my wife and I met uh, well we knew each other as friends way way back when and she lived up here in Branscombe with her ex-husband managing the UC Berkeley Reserve and um, we I mean how how lucky could I be to meet a woman who would live up here because this I said this is how I wanted to live and it has a part of the subject we'll get to you know is some of my psychedelic experiences and uh, so first thing we did we got together in 1990 we started looking for a property up here and something just fell in our lap and uh, I said oh my gosh this is where I want to live where I want to die you know the whole deal. So um, we are very compatible for this kind of a lifestyle, and it's uh, been a very joyous experience. What can I say? Well, we have had remarkably similar experiences in some ways because yes. I I also came here in the mid seventies, and I eventually in it was in nineteen eighty nine that I actually bought a home here. You were nineteen about nineteen ninety, yeah. and and I have fell in love with the place back in 75, but I went back out into the world and I had my work at my practice in the Bay area. And of course my work at Wilbur hot Springs for 49 years. But I also have found someone who is happy here uh, living very remotely. I mean, we are more than happy here. We are so appreciative and grateful that we've had the good sense to be here all this time. Yes. Yes. We're very fortunate. Very I, fortunate, you know. I marvel how, at these kind of things that happen to us in life. <laughs> how is it? How is it that we've both been here for thirty years or so or more, living here, and I never see you in Harvest Market or at the or at the theater, or I never, I've yeah. never bumped into you. I've never, <laughs> I, I've never bumped into you anywhere. But I bumped into you at Sasha Shulgren's house, and I bumped into you at KGO one night late when I was there doing a show, but never here yeah. in the Bay. Do you ever come off Branscombe, or do you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, and it's uh, it's kind of kind of interesting. Well, you know, for us here, it's you know, you do your shopping every couple of weeks, once a week, and the Harvest Market, absolutely. You know, yeah. sometimes I'll sit in the parking lot or go uh, or go take the car and go do my own errands and so forth. But yeah, it's one of our favorite uh, favorite places, and of course, the theater has been closed for a while. I guess. So, <laughs> when you were growing up, you grew up in New Jersey? Uh, I was very young in New Jersey, and then we moved to uh, Manhattan. Oh, so okay. This is a long way from Manhattan. And I think about it, my gosh, as a New Yorker, and uh, you know all this, you know, the world ends and stops at the Hudson River. That's it's a very right. myopic view of existence. And, mm-hmm. um, and here uh, and here I am. And uh, actually, uh, I can actually relate to a particular moment in the uh, in the 70s where, um, you know, via a psychedelic experience, you know, with a blade of grass, <laughs> it just rocked my rocked my scene, so to speak. And I, I realized how powerful a force nature was and I wanted nature in my life. And that began a pursuit of what I found here, you know, it didn't happen instantly, but it sure set my sights differently. And uh, I never look back in terms of Manhattan. I go back to Manhattan and I enjoy visiting, but 
Um, you know, it's, uh, I'm not sure it's exactly the healthiest way for humans, <clears throat> humans to live, but nevertheless, I was a, I was a stuck up, you know, snob Manhattanite before coming here. I came to California for just one year. It was going to be for my internship. And, uh, I came out with five or six other medical students and we all were going to do it for one year and then go back to New York. Nobody went back. <laughs> Everybody stayed in California. How old were you? when you had your first mind-altering uh, experience with, uh, with oh, a that's such... A, a tricky way of... Um, well, I'd say if the 70, 40, 30... Well, I was about 30, late late 20s, late and 20s. You, okay, and do you remember where you were and what it was that you took? Um, well, I think that you can help me with this. Back in, in that era, in the late 60s, in the very early 70s, you know, there are a variety of things on the market, which I suspect were not what they were supposed to be. In other words, I, I don't think you could buy in a capsule psilocybin or mescaline. I think everything was just LSD and, you know, laced, laced, you know, <laughs> uh, vitamin C or something else. So I mm -hmm. suspect it was, uh, it was definitely L uh, LSD and it was not, you know, it was strange. My, the first experience uh, was not in nature. Uh, and it, it was uh, a group of us going to a rock and roll concert. And um, let it be said, uh, that changed my musical tastes for sure. <laughs> that, time, that was quite an experience. Afterwards, um, I, I, I didn't like being in large crowds and uh, in, in, um, taking um, a psychedelic substance. And I think you would probably agree, agree with that, especially the protocols nowadays for in research and therapy uh, with psychedelics, which I'm so thrilled to see. But I uh, started, um, it would be in nature, it would be, you know, with um, with one other person or a very, very, very small group. I remember once with my sister and brother-in-law and stuff like that. And those were where the miraculous things um, started, started happening. You know, I, it was certainly a fun thing, and I certainly have met people in that, um, uncontrolled environment who you know enjoyed psychedelic experiences but uh for some people it turns into let's you know use a tough word here uh, you know spiritual experiences and um as well as uh, joy uh but it was um in nature that those experiences happened uh, happened for me the, the size of the group for myself uh, in relation to what you just said is either one me alone, myself, or one other person. Anything larger than that is uh, is 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 not of my taste. Because no, I think it's risky, Osco. I I've seen those situations, and I and I I agree with you. I would say ninety, maybe ninety eight percent of the time with one other person, and that's yeah. enough. That's enough. Yeah, I, I learned very quickly that for me, uh, psychedelic substances are are. Are, maybe sacramental might be the word. It, it's it's for in, it's for inner space work and and sometimes for enjoying enjoying the outer world, but but in a very special, uh, as I said, a sacramental way. It's not a it's not a recreational experience for me. It might be because I'm a serious kind of guy and I should be more frivolous, but it's not been and and that's how it is. Um, so. After that, the, the initial experiences you had then, uh, 
were positive enough to uh, you for you to want to continue. So could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, the next step? What was the next step in the development of your experimentation? Where did you go after the one? Yes, you, well, you... at first it was about uh, also closing doors. I had one kind of um, paranoid experience in, uh, you know, in the early days of the couple of concerts, which was a habit at that particular point. It wasn't too long, but being in a corridor, being enclosed, so I also knew, you know, the other, the other side. Now, you know, our generation sometimes gets condemned for this, quote, self-experimentation, but, you know, that's all there was. And I, I you know, I have known, I, I know people who have participated in some of the more, quote, therapeutic environments with a mask and music and under under supervision, et cetera, which I uh, obviously uh, support. But this was the Wild West back then. And so quickly it became, you know, in nature as much as possible, which was um, something I had to go find. Now, I was living in San Diego at the time is where I did my internship and residency, and then I hit the road. And then it was, you know, it was wide, you know, wide, wide open. And um, Before you go started, on, allow me yeah. to interrupt. Um, yeah, you would. You would. You took these psychedelic substances while you were in your residency. Um, yes. Were there other residents that you were able to share the experience with verbally to talk about? Did you know other people who were doing the same, or were you alone in this isolation? Um, yes. No. That's a very good, very good question. You know, I. I and, and by the way, I, I don't mind being quote. You use the term, and when we were talking yesterday, you know, being outed. Uh, I'm kind of proud of it, and it was a subject that I had no hesitation on the air bringing up and admitting to having having used uh, marijuana and psychedelics, and because I saw the therapeutic potential, and I, and I also saw that how minds were so closed at the government level that made this illegal and treacherous even to use. Now it's you know easy to say, but it was a little bit uh, a little bit scary at that time. Yes, there were a few other uh, doctors at the hospital. And we kind of, you know, that was an era where if your hair was a little long, you know, you knew you were, you knew, you knew, you know, that was a brother. And, um, and I have to say that, um, some of these other, other physicians, a couple of them I know did the, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out thing, hit the road and changed their careers within medicine and some entirely left medicine, uh, altogether to pursue, uh, pursue other things. So um, nobody quite, you know, there there were textbooks and there was a lot of a lot being written at the time about the experience. So I think it, it separated into people who just hey hey this is this is fun and I, I guess recreational might be the term for it. And there were other people who were more serious about it and saw the potential of this for um, you know, uh, human enlightenment. And I. I I saw that split, you know, early on, and some people uh, lost interest after that. Um, I never lost interest, uh, but I did get to a point where I felt I learned what I what I wanted to learn, and the subsequent uh, experiences, you know, were kind of a, a kind, kind of repeats. And I, I I I can say that everything, most everything I experienced, I thought was real when I came down and and contemplating it and talking and thinking about it days and weeks uh, uh, later. Um, so I, you know, I kind of like, you get to a point, you know, where, uh, okay, 
and and I've uh, learned this, and yet um, infrequently in the subsequent years, um, you know, I would I would do it in very special circumstances. I certainly have a few times, you know, in in uh, in Mendes, in excuse me, in, in the Prascom area, having all this la- all this land, and it's always always joyous. And, uh, and 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 positive. And that, by the way, you know, when you talk substances, I I uh, well, I, you know, LSD back in the day it was window pane and little orange little barrels and and things like that. And so you know, mushrooms came along and you could buy them and get them. I had never done mescaline, et cetera, but I, I uh, found um, that LSD was always the easiest. The easiest to uh, to utilize because you knew kind of once you found a reliable source and amount, you know it's illegal. So uh, that was always uh, always something to be concerned about. You know you stick um, you stick you stick with it. When you're referring to uh, taking uh, things, what 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 specific things are you referring to? Going back, uh, you know those days with the other residents, and then going forward. What, as far as you know, what were you taking? Well, as far as I know, um, initially it was it was LSD. I'm pretty sure, only because there aren't any other substances that I know about uh, that were available then. That in such a tiny commodity like the little teeny orange barrels or or the, what we called window pane, uh, you're t- you're talking about microgram doses. Um, so anything like psilocybin or mescaline or anything else would be a larger volume. So I was pretty sure that uh, most of the things I took in that particular period well, was was LSD. Yeah, I experimented with other stuff. I mean, I smoked pot at the time, of course. And uh, let me think. There's probably you know a few times um, I took um, uh, cocaine, which I didn't really you know I I, I feared that that wasn't that wasn't really really my drug and. I suppose, Richard, that would be the um, that would be the range of it. Um, now, yeah, that's what I that's what I assume. I assume that it was. Now, years later, I can't remember what year it was that we uh, uh, ran into each other at uh, Dr. Sasha Shulgren's house. Yeah, in, yeah. In, oh, in that's Arinda. I forgot. <laughs> in Arinda, yeah, and so. You know, he, he was uh, the, the the grandfather of MDMA. Have you uh, had any experiences with that one? Yes, I'm sorry. I forgot that. Isn't that that's kind of strange? Um, because there's lots of questions. Is that a psychedelic? Is that not a psychedelic? Yes, um, I did. I had have experience, had experiences. I thought that was just also remarkable, life, uh, life, life-changing. And I am always fascinated by that group of molecules, because it is based on a, a, a methamphetamine molecule um, structurally, and yet the effect is um, is pretty different and, and also uh, similar. So that time out there when I met him, because um, he was the granddaddy of all this, and it was just before it became illegal, there was such interesting research on MDMA at that point. I remember seeing videos I, I did these, uh, I did stories on television, you know, about, that's why I went out there actually to do stories on him and we developed a communication, um, you know, back and forth about it. And there, so I remember seeing videos of, for instance, <laughs> near and dear to my heart, maybe you too, uh, divorcing couples, 
uh, before and afterwards. And uh, and I think this was done at Harvard. I can't quite remember. But beforehand, the couple's going at each other's throats and just doing the typical things that, you know, people who are angry in a relationship do. And then afterwards, how they were so understanding how the barriers, the, the empathogenicity of this. And, and it was, I said, wow, this is, this is powerful. Uh, I just hope that and I wanted to be a part of helping to legitimize this and to um, and to uh, see it develop into a, th- a therapeutic regime. Uh, the possibilities were endless with with that particular uh, drug. And then, bam, uh, uh, the uh, the government dropped the uh, dropped the curtain. Dropped and, the curtain you know, in 1985. Yeah. So, uh, yep. That's exactly. Uh, yeah. That's about it. And so, so it must have been just before that um, that I was doing uh, doing those stories. Interesting so, uh, that just I, just as you're talking now about your experiences with quote the empathy medicine, mm-hmm. I I received this from a listener and it's to you, Dean. You are one of my heroes. I grew up in the Bay Area listening to you and watching you on KGO. I always loved how you taught Americans how to think critically separating causation from correlation. I loved how you translated complex medical ideas to lay people with warmth, respect, and humor. You inspired me, and I went on to train as a nurse practitioner at UCSF, have practiced for nearly 20 years in psychiatry, and now teach at UCSF. I have taught national audiences of medical providers about cannabis and psychedelics. The best feedback I ever get from students and patients is how I make complex ideas understandable. I have you to thank as one of my many career inspirations. Best wishes to you, Andrew Penn. What a wow. beautiful, what a beautiful, I brought tears to my eyes really. Well, me too, dude. <laughs> really? What? Yes. Um, well, Andrew Penn, I if you're listening, th- Andrew Penn, if you're listening, thank you. This was a very beautiful letter that you wrote here. Absolutely, Andrew made my made my day. Just made made my day. I'm going to get a fat head here. You know, you got to be careful. I, well, uh, and, I couldn't and, I couldn't ask for anything more. I I you know when I think of the difficult times and the fights and the all the hassles with establishment ideas on things. I, um, I, I, I just feel rewarded. I feel rewarded right there. That's so sweet. I love it, it. What can I has, tell you? <laughs> has it, was it a tough journey? Was it, you said, you know, the, the hassles, was it a tough journey for yes, you? Yes. Well, at times, you know, I'm not a combative person and uh, there are times, um, I mean, I, you know, I have my war stories when you're uh, fighting for rationality and for clear thinking and to advance, you know, human <laughs> humanity, you're going to come up against walls. People are going to fight you. Now, listen, for so many years, I, um, it's, a, it's a longer story than reasonable, but I followed Rush Limbaugh's show. We, we were kind of uh, the same guy, the guy who, who helped me syndicate and helped my career um after he, uh you know we got launched um he he took on another project and that was Rush Limbaugh so as you can imagine so many medical issues uh, were and still are you know um political 
Yes. And uh, also, when you, you know, there's a very large establishment in America of, of uh, pseudoscientific practitioners, you know, you can call them by the bad words, you know, there are quacks out there who would take advantage of you uh, and sell you something that's worthless just to rip you off. Yes. There is a huge segment in healthcare like that. There are people, and I always separate the, the next group out, are people who really believe they stumbled upon something. You know, and, and this subject we're talking about is kind of one of those subjects, but there are people, you know, who can't quite completely prove with the gold standard double-blind studies uh, what they've discovered, but, you know, they're moving by instinct and not harming people, and but they're trying to advance our knowledge. So when you say something negative about um, the pure, uh, the pure rip-off, rip-off people, uh, they get their lawyers all over you. They threaten uh, your career. They write all the radio stations. They want to take you off the air. Uh, they threaten. Uh, it, it's um, it's very it's a very combative uh, in, industry. And I, you know, uh, I, it's funny. I always knew my first experience up here in Branscombe. You know, I built my own house. We didn't have hot water or heat or anything like that. And, uh, you know, we improved it, you know, to a certain degree. But I knew if I could live and be happy uh, without all the, you know, all the stuff of civilization that uh, I was indeed wealthy and I could always fall back on that. So I never felt uh, supremely threatened. Um, I always felt you take it all away from me. I'll do I'll do fine. You know, I can live in a cabin in Branscombe and be as happy as living in Manhattan in a penthouse. Uh, so. Um, those battles were, um, you know, were, were discouraging or frightening, but, you know, I wasn't a kid either. So, um, you know, I had large media companies behind me to defend me, et cetera. And, um, I, you know, one of the hardest things, uh, Richard, and thankfully you have immunity from this and you're doing the right thing, is your advertisers. When I went on the air, a lot of the, um, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of the, let's just say, more questionable practitioners, et cetera, would take ads out on my show advertising things that were worthless, you know, from the lose 10 pounds overnight um, to all kinds of stuff. And I couldn't control that because the show is airing in two, well, at one point, 400 stations. So the local stations would sell ads um, for a local practitioner who's peddling something that's phony. And I, there's no way to do that. So I started a policy on air where if there's any, you hear any advertising on my show for a product, could you call and ask? I'll tell the truth. Whoa, did I get into trouble for that? Because in New York, there's people who make a living um, selling advertising on a national show like that. And they get mad at me because these people pay money to, you know, uh, to, uh, to place uh, their ads for questionable products. So anyway, you know, I have my, uh, I have my war stories. <laughs> Dean, in 1972, I closed my very successful clinic on Sacramento Street near Children's Hospital in San Francisco, and I moved to Wilbur Hot Springs. And I hardly had running water, and uh, there was no heat. It sounds very similar to what you're talking about. In the and same year, by the way. <laughs> was it the same exact year? And yeah, well, I dropped out of medicine at 72. I, I, had a, I had my son, who's now pushing 50, obviously. And, um, and in, the, in the bus, he was kind of born and raised in the, the bus, and we, uh, we took off, took off well, in that regard. That's so interesting. 
Yep, my oldest daughter, Sarana, uh, who's a prominent yoga teacher now, uh, uh, was born at Wilbur Hot Springs, uh, <laughs> not uh, not quite underwater uh, in the in the in the Middleton water, though we considered it. But uh, she was born <laughs> there in 19, 1975. And here's what I think you'll find interesting: for twenty years at Wilbur Hot Springs, I lived in a room that was ten by ten. That was my yep. that. And and I said the exact same thing to myself that you did it. I've never heard this from another person. I said, I can be happy living my life in a 10 by 10 room and with very little heat. And but I got the water running and and I'm a wealthy man. I've got a family yeah. and, and, and I'm a happy guy. And so no matter what, no matter what. And then I went out into the world in 79. And you may have heard. And I started the, uh, you know, the International Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program. And, you know, and I went out with a, you know, really went out into the world with a vengeance for a while before I came back. But the whole time, I always knew that no matter what happened, I could go back and live in that 10 by 10 room and it would be fine. Yes. And and so my wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing. And my question to you is, to what extent do you believe that that sense of security with living, if you will, minimally, but in some ways maximally in terms of, of, of heart warmth, did, we, did you learn that from your psychedelic experiences? Um, I can answer that easily, a lot. A lot of that. Talk about that. Yes, talk about that, please. How it affected your value system. Well, i tell you something. Um, uh, (laughs) It started out with something that is, you know, it's now almost a cliche uh, with psychedelic uh, drugs. Uh, There is a, uh, my fundamental, quote, spiritual beliefs, may not mesh with everybody's. I'm a, I try to be practical and scientific about it, but certainly it is obvious that we are the stuff of stars and we are, are every atom in our bodies is borrowed uh, from Mother Nature and from, from the universe. And a lot of my early experiences with psychedelic drugs was an emotional feeling that matches that. It's one thing to say it int- intellectually, um, because intellectually it is, it is true. So our, you know, we die, our molecules return and our, you know, our carbon goes out there and that's it. And it gets reprocessed and rebuilt into other beings. But feeling that oneness was quite, uh, quite something. And, you know, that becomes the, the beginning, I think of, of emotional security in a way, because it's something you can always tap into no matter what the world does. And it is, it just is, is a reality. So from there, uh, in terms of pursuing nature, which was, uh, it's a journey I, I take every day, you know, I got up this morning, you know, we, we sleep outdoors here and, and in the summertime, my wife and I, we just love it. We get up in the morning and it's just endlessly fascinating, you know, whether it's the, you know, the wildflowers are now coming up or the birds, whatever. So nature became very, very important to this city boy. And um, through uh, through nature, um, you know, you learn how really simple life can be and is on this planet for so many people. Uh, they may not have the abundance and the other parts of it where we have to be practical, like I get to go to you know Harvest Market a couple of times to buy food. 
I've tried. I moved up here as part of the, you know, back to the land movement. And I sense, you know, you too. And yes. we, uh, we learned to garden and to grow things, et cetera. We also learned how difficult that is as an individual. And that's where, you know, we learned about community. And I got to say, Richard, while I, I, I sometimes have sometimes negative views about our fellow men, and, you know, there's a reconsideration process, I think, that goes on about that magical period of the 60s. But I so distinctly remember at, at that, that brief period where I really, really believed human beings could get it together. You know, there was a sense of community. People cared about each other. It was just remarkable, very heady times. And yes, it changed. But I've, I notice and I love to see references to that. When I see uh, people of our generation reflecting upon that period, because it's still alive, people know we, we just have to come together, and we can, and it's possible. And so I still have hope. Um, I just realize that social change, profound social change, takes time, and I'm I can be impatient. You know, when I thought it was going <laughs> to yes. happen overnight. Sure, but we're impatient because our lives time are a relatively brief period of time, and there are lifetime, and we forget that in the history of all of it, of the world, this is, it's moving very quickly, but for us, it's moving slowly. Yes, yes, the, and listen, the, Richard, it's a pretty wonderful thing to wake up in the morning, like a couple of days ago, and read what is about to be coming, you know, you know the FDA is going to have to approve MDMA for, for you know, well, whether it's uh, post-traumatic stress or all the other kinds of things that, oh my gosh, how long it took for people to realize the, the potential um, benefits of these substances. Um, when, I've, been, uh, I've, been know, wait, I've been waiting for that one. Sorry, I interrupted. I've been waiting for that one for 35 years, sir. I'll, I'll bet. I'll bet. Since, Richard, since of course, it was scheduled, perfect. and for LSD, we've been wait, waiting for over fifty years, while while yep. science has been suppressed, and and not just science has been suppressed, but as you know, untold numbers of people have missed out on the benefits of these potentially healing substances. That's really what's reprehensible about the whole political yes, nature it, of it, right? Oh, exactly. And it was such a clear indication of how close-minded, you know, quote, government can, can, can be about these things. I mean, I, when I first started talking about the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics, there were some physicians out there that, and I had a lot of physician contacts in that particular era, and many who were very supportive of what I was doing, basically, because it was based on science and based on the literature, and, and, um, and I tried to, uh, you know, to be that person. When I started bringing up um, psychedelic drugs and potential therapeutic um, therapeutic benefits, I, I got very negative feedback from some people I really admired and I was close to. They know, Dean, you got to back off there. There's no way. You know, that taint of, quote, illegal drugs. Well, it isn't legality. You know, heroin, opiates are illegal, and it's one of the most beneficial drugs we have in medicine. I could go down a whole list of how many pharmaceuticals were based on, you know, botanical drugs, and not only that, illegal substances. I mean, in that era, when we, before doing uh, eye surgery, we would use, uh, we would use cocaine and, uh, and drops in people's eyes because it would numb them and suppress blood flow, et cetera. So the reasoning was, was, was flawed, was flawed. 
And I said, just because some government declares something to be illegal doesn't mean it doesn't have therapeutic benefits. And that's, of course, um, been an uphill uphill battle, and it was illogical. And uh, and now, at last, finally, minds may begin to open. So I'm so happy to have lived long enough to to, to see this. I, I I take note that another major contributor. To, uh, to to med- to medicine and to to uh, psychology and psychiatry was also an ophthalmologist originally, and that's uh, Sigmund Freud, who also used cocaine uh, in his early ophthalmological work, and that's how he uh, yeah. <laughs> remember that. That's how he started to use it in in therapy, thinking it would be an antidepressant. Until yeah, some, yeah, it is for a few, for an hour. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Until some of his colleagues got into some serious trouble. Yeah. So when it, during this period, uh, when you're, you're, you're having these psychedelic experiences, you go on, you shared them with some with some of the uh, residents and, and, and your value systems, you're, 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 you're reevaluating in your life. Were you able to share the psychedelic experiences with family members, with close friends and close colleagues, or or it, to, how did that work in terms of being alone with this versus being able to share with with some people who were simpatico rather than simply giving you negative heat? Yes, you know that's interesting. Now you mean sharing intellectually? I mean not 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 taking it. You know, correct, <laughs> correct. Yeah, yeah. Sharing the story, saying, look. Here's yes. something I did, and it's affecting my life, yep. and I think it's affecting my life in a very positive way. I, I think my value yes. systems are, ch- yeah, that kind of stuff. Yes. Um, well, I I don't think I ever really shut my mouth about it, uh, <laughs> every opportunity I had. I mean, I, I, I wasn't afraid to talk about it on the air, but I, a little more limited than, you know, the frankness and openness that we have here in this conversation. I would say as little as a year ago, someone, um, a friend of mine uh, from college and who was a very, a fairly well-known, um, you know, he's an emeritus professor at Yale, and uh, his daughter is a therapist, and she d- developed an interest in in MDMA and in psychedelic therapy, and they were so upset. And he was more of a, quote, straight type of a guy. And someone I greatly admire. And I remember this conversation, this is about a year ago, having this conversation. I said, she's on the right track. You know, there's tremendous potential. This parent, they were so concerned, her mother and father. And she went, and I just found out yesterday <laughs> that she had enrolled herself, I guess, at NYU in the program there for complimentary, um, I don't know what the formal subject, the name of it. It's in the newspaper two days ago when they announced the, uh, you know, the MDMA trial the double blind trial and they talked about it in the yes. New York times about these new programs that have started up helping therapists catch up and learn about this. <laughs> and so, excuse me, here it was, uh, just, um, the day before talking to him, well, you must feel proud of your daughter. And, um, and they had totally reversed their, uh, their position on it. So I felt good about, about that. And yes, I've, um, I've talked about it to all my kids. I have five sons. Um, and congratulations. Yeah. The older, the older group, let me just think for a second, have all had, um, psychedelic experiences, um, not to the degree that, you know, we did, but they've all taken them. Um, 
One actually got involved in a therapeutic program, was having some stress reactions and post-traumatic stuff for you know other other and a whole other whole other thing, but got involved and I guess was was been an underground situation where the basic protocol with a therapist you know was followed with um, you know uh, lying on a mat in a safe environment with a mask and, and music etc. and it was a profound experiences um, for him. Um, the, uh, and I have a couple of younger boys. One of them, I think is, I mean, I know has had, but I don't know what they're taking. You know, it's so hard nowadays, even know what, what, what's in substances. But, uh, so that uh, in a minor, in a minor way. So yeah, I've been, uh, been, I've been pretty open about it. I, I felt that I could quote, sell it, you know, to my own kids. Um, they, uh, they know my history and I'm a believer in life that, you know, there's there really are no mistakes. You know, <laughs> I I I count my uh, among my mistakes as my blessings because they move me forward through life. And I look back, each one of these kinds of things added up to who I who I who I became. And I um, there's so much randomness in a way in life. It's what we do about it that makes makes sense. So when I put it all together, and I think my kids know my history. I'm very happy where I wound up. I have great relationships with my kids. And that doesn't mean with a few divorces under my belt, there weren't traumas, but that's how we grow. Um, and I think, you know, for them, uh, for them also. So, yeah, I don't uh, have any problem talking about it. I love to talk about it to people who are the most unlikely candidates. You know, we have friends in the mid from the Midwest and, and um, you know, you see the looks on their faces when I describe it. And I always feel if I can bring, if they like me and respect me and I can bring some credibility to the subject, then I'm, I'm doing my job and spreading the word. That is exactly why I'm doing this series on psychedelic elders. Exactly what you just said, so that the public can realize that that re- contributory good citizens think well of these substances in terms of their potential for healing and for personal growth, and have had these experiences themselves, just as you and I have, and 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 hopefully we will get the word out uh, because so. Uh, I, I, I'm very uh, pleased, of course, that the, that the phase four trial with MDMA has gone through and it looks like uh, we will get uh, we, we will make progress towards uh, some form of licensure. Uh, what that looked like yet, who knows, because of the political situation and uh, which is so deeply concerning. I, I, I hesitate to even get, a, get into that whole topic because it's a, it's so deeply concerning. Um, yes. And you know exactly, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, do you, do you, well, uh, have you written, have you written as well as spoken uh, uh, on television and, and in radio? Have you written about your psychedelic experiences? Um, well, I think <laughs> it's funny. It's funny to, um, scratch my head. I, I've written a few books, of course. Um, yes. and my first, my first book, uh, Eat, Drink, and Be Merry, I definitely had a, a section in there um, um, talking about it. I don't know how much detail I get into uh, for myself. I certainly admitted um, to using, uh, you know, using pot. And I can't, you know, I'd have to, it's, it's, I, I, it might sound strange to people to think, gee, the guy can't even remember what he wrote in his own book. 
Um, but you no, know, it doesn't you sound a, strange. I read your book, and I can't. <laughs> and okay. I read your book years ago, and I can't remember, and that's why I'm asking the question. Otherwise, yeah, I yeah, would be able. Yeah, yeah. I'd quote right from your book. <laughs> yeah. No, I would not have. Um, I wouldn't have backed off. And mm-hmm. uh, so I know. Um, you know, I know. I wrote about um, about about drug use, and I, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure. Now uh, I have, I'll go after the after the program here. I'll go look it up to be uh, to be sure. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't hesitate. I wouldn't hesitate. I, I wouldn't hesitate. What about what about your folks? What, what what can you tell us about how your folks? What what were their thoughts and reactions when you would uh, talk openly yes. about, about these? It's very subjects? interesting. You know, I, um, I've taken a few unpopular stands that would. Uh, <laughs> would, would uh, have challenged them and they handled it very well. My, my parents uh, uh, divorced after 20, uh, 25 years, but it's the strangest thing. When I dropped out of medicine, I mean, you know, my son, the doctor dropped out of this whole thing and uh, they, uh, they were supportive. I, I, I must say, I think they were smart enough to know, as I've learned with kids is as soon as you start telling them no about something, you know, you're going down a path that you're going to lose. And so they, they kind of <laughs> right. went along with it. And I think they just assumed sooner or later I would find my footing and what it is I wanted in life. And they, um, and, and, and they were right. And, and they were right. So, um, I, I, I'm really kind of, you know, kind of proud of that. I, I, I couldn't have predicted that. I thought like a lot of people, you know, who go through, went through the sixties, you know, the parents really fought them and it was terrible. And, a lot of people, listen, let's face it, uh, didn't come out of it uh, successfully either. And you've worked in rehabilitation, so you know, um, you know, you know what happened. And I have a lot of friends who came out of it really, really well and enlightened. And some people didn't do so well, you know, and got in trouble with uh, with substances. So, yeah, my folks, uh, my folks were uh, I, I felt I had support all the way. And of course, when I, <laughs> I guess when I wound up on on radio, they were very proud of that fact. And they must have felt justified. Oh, my God. Thank yeah. God we didn't, <laughs> we didn't give him a hard time. Who knows where he would have wound up? He did. You know, when you mentioned that some of our friends and colleagues uh, got in trouble with substances. And, and of course, I found the same thing. The substances that uh that people got in trouble with in my experiences were um were not psychedelics they were no. al- mostly alcohol uh and for a certain period there cocaine uh i would say those were the the two that people got in the most and i would put alcohol as the number one culprit uh yes, i think I'm, i think I'm... i think alcohol is the uh is the unsung malevolent substance uh in our culture and it has been for what hundreds or thousands of years but i i was i was i was really affected i don't know if you saw the the lancet article a couple of years ago where they did a longitudinal study and they had i think tens of thousands of subjects and 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 hundreds of scientists were involved and they published it i think in 2017 in lancet and basically, the headline of the entire study was "Alcohol in any amount is toxic." Yeah, I'm Richard. It's an unpopular stance, but I'm with you 100. percent I think it is the most single, most dangerous drug civilization has ever come up with. And yet, I used to find myself using it 
as an example uh, when it came to certain um, illegal drugs because I say, you know, there's use and there's abuse of everything. Um, a, a lot of people, quote, use alcohol to a certain degree, you know, <laughs> in, in, quote, moderation or less and enjoy it and don't get into trouble. And then some people get in a lot of trouble. And the same applies to pot when it comes to psychedelics. Oh, so many people, oh, they're going to get addicted to, you know, you can't get addicted, I don't think, um, to psychedelic. Who, who could handle that every day? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. For me, right. I would uh, take a psychedelic and it might be months and months and months before the next time, even years in, some, in most periods of my later, later life. You know, when I was a kid, okay, okay, there were periods maybe once a week for a couple of months. But that's it. And it's not an, quote, addicting substance. And alcohol, oh, my gosh, the mayhem that alcohol has caused, the loss of life, the strife, etc. And I, I now understand, I can imagine the world back in the beginning of the 20th century when uh, people, people made it illegal. You know, that's not a small thing to <laughs> take something like alcohol. And not that I propose that, but it's a model for how... Um, how uh, we aggrandize, promote, and support you know the most uh, the most dangerous drugs in our in, in our society and everything else you know we vilify that uh, have the potential for benefit. Well, what is your thinking presently? Is there room for moderation of a toxic substance? Can you is is there room to take a little bit of rat poison? I mean, what? what yeah, I know. I am not a drinker. Um, I, 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 first, I, it, it just doesn't feel good. I, I, um, I mean, at a period during my career, and you go out in business meetings and so forth and so on, I'd knuckle under and I'd have some wine. A uh, small amount. It doesn't take much for it. Just, uh, just does not feel right. I, I am always interested, and in, I often get in conversations with people. And I worked in, you know, I, you know, I was working at a drug rehab place at, the time when the radio thing happened yeah, I, had Sacramento. I had a little shop you know but i always am interested in talking to people and what is what is the attraction and now addiction is another thing of course um, but what is the the attraction um the attraction to it and i have known a lot of people with um with uh, alcohol problems and that uh, in, in, at some point i have turned them on to pot thinking i was helping them and i said this you gotta pick one or the other it's a lot safer and a lot and, and less uh, less toxic, but you know I found most of them just wind up using both. So there they are, smoking pot and drinking and drinking a lot, and that didn't <laughs> that wasn't helpful. So alcohol does mystify me. It is an ancient drug. You know we have examples of almost uh, almost every animal species on Earth. There are uh, there are occasions where they've been observed from elephants to birds, etc. So there's something about it that mystifies mystifies me. And is there a place for use? I, I, I'm not a great believer in, um, you know, we've kind of backed off a little bit of thing about, you know, alcohol is healthy, uh, healthy for you. It's very difficult scientifically, you know, to prove this, the wine hypothesis, because people who use, I mean, all the original French studies, people who um, use wine usually demographically different. They're usually uh, in a, a different uh demographic profile, socioeconomically, they have better health care, they may take better care of themselves. So it's very, very hard to prove this thing that alcohol is actually good for you. Um, how bad it's for you in, in, a, in a small amount, 
well, you know, people do bad things to themselves. Uh, you know, I got to draw your battle line. So I, I, you know, I, um, I usually keep my mouth shut. <laughs> we have an issue now with the blue zones uh, because what Butner, uh, who you know, Butner was condi- was commissioned by National Geographic to find the places in the world where people live the longest and the healthiest. And he's calling mm-hmm. them the blue zones. And he found five areas, you know, about this in the world where people live to 100. But more importantly, their last 10 years are healthy years rather than yeah. in America. Our last 10 years are, are sick years. And, and so he came back with these nine principles of the blue zones. You know, what do they have in common? And one of the things they have in common is four out of the five groups drink a little bit of wine uh, many nights a week. Not much, mm-hmm. like basically like what you said, you know, they'll have a glass of wine or maybe a little tiny bit more. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a pretty big deal because this Blue Zone thing is going to catch on, and so it's going to be supportive uh, of, um, uh, you know, of the wine industry, and uh, it's a slippery slope. Between yeah, you that's know, the problem, isn't it? It's, it's and a, I used to, um, I, you know, I used to uh, try. You know, you, you don't want to present an extreme idea to people if you want to change minds. You know, you got to do it incrementally. So, you know, my my rap used to be uh, Americans. You know, uh, we we use alcohol. Let's take kids. You know, they go get drunk, make a fool of themselves in a bar, and get in a fight. Right. Um, and the French, of course, would introduce alcohol very early to their kids as part of the family ritual, as part of a meal, and seem to have lower rates of alcoholism. I understand recently that started, that started to change, um, and that um, the French and Europeans have as much, are approaching as much trouble as we have uh, with alcohol. So something shifts, and you're right, it could very easily be a slippery slope, and yet, um, you know, I, I know a lot of I have a lot of friends who just seem to be able to um, to use, uh, let's say, wine with food in a limited a limited way, and some little by little by little, a little more every night, and before you know it, bam, they're in uh, they're in trouble. And trouble has to do with something I do- also don't understand. Don't understand the feelings and the draw of how how they can't stop. And, you know, you get withdrawal, the symptoms of withdrawal for a lot of drugs is horrible. And you wind up just using the medication, medication, using the drug to uh, to stay uh, to stay stable. And you're doing it to prevent feeling sick as opposed to feeling uh, having any positive feelings. So, um, yeah, it's a tricky deal. God, we sound like a couple of old curmudgeons here, you know, and I hate, well, I hate to sound that way, but it's, it's the truth. That's you, don't, I, um, you don't sound like a curmudgeon to me at all. You're, as a matter of fact, you sound very similar to how I feel about myself, which is I'm a young person in an old body. My spirit feels regular. My my emotions yeah. feel regular, but when I look at the at the dermis, it looks like somebody else's. <laughs> I used to used to question my father a lot about this. You know how he felt. He said nothing has nothing had changed inside of his head, and it was just you know getting out of bed in the morning. He kind of kind of getting lubricated a little bit to get those joints uh, those joints working. Yeah, that's a blessing. Uh, getting you know, back to alcohol and and what you've noticed, you know it, it's it's what I call the creep. Yeah. Most everything in life 
has a creep, very little stays exactly the same. So if things either creep and get you know more so, or they get less so, and I that's what I think goes on with with things like alcohol, and uh, which is they start you start with a little bit, but then there's a sort of a creep to have a, t- a little bit more, or maybe you ate a little bit more, so you want to wash it down with a little bit more. But if you do it enough nights in a row, like you know, when I started running, I, I could only run, and I was in my forties. I could only run like a hundred yards, but I found if I kept running a hundred yards every day, the next thing I knew it was 120 and then 150. It just sort of crept up because of the consistency of doing the same thing over and over every day. Two years later, I ran 26 mile marathon, but it was for you. Yeah. But it wasn't like a big, a huge effort. The effort, was really getting out there to do the 100 yards to begin with. Yes. Once, I, w- once I did that every single day, it just sort of, it, it was a creep, just like the creep with alcohol, creep with so many things in our lives. And I've sort yes. of taken that as a lesson in life, that if you do something enough days in a row, regardless of what it is, it's like it goes from the floppy down into the hard drive and gets imprinted in there, and then it becomes something you just do. It's just part of what you do. And then it very often increases. You just do yeah, more. I, I like, you know, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, it, it, for, for the good and for the ill, um, that, yeah, both. that creep is how you get people to do the good things in, in, in life, and it sneaks up on you. Uh, with the bad things, uh, as you as you described, I've seen that a lot. I've seen that a lot myself, you know, and people I know, and and um, family members and relatives, etc. That little bit of a, <laughs> it's such a that's a good description. Good description. A story from my own life for you. I, I as I said, I started with the hundred yards and became a marathon runner, and then I had a a really a very serious uh, motorcycle accident. And I, I won't go into the details of it, but it, it was very serious. And, and I was in a wheelchair for six months. And um, after I got out of the wheelchair and started rehabbing, what I noticed was fascinating, which was since prior to the accident, during as I was learning to run and became a marathon runner, my daily routine was an hour. So for years, I just had a routine where I did I ran for an hour. Almost as soon as I got out of the wheelchair and started to rehab, I rehabbed for an hour. And, and people, you know, the, the 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 rehab people and so on, so they were sort of astounded that I didn't start at 5, 10, and 15 minutes. But it wasn't out of effort that I did this. It was... That's what my body was used to. It was used to an hour, so it just went out and did an hour, and it was huh. uh, was was very interesting because it was an example of how when something gets set in over a period of time, it gets in. It's sort of like you know you learn to to, to bike ride when you're a kid and you don't do it for ten years. You get on a bike, you still know how. It, it, it's set in in some way uh, into the cellular and the muscle memory. I'm yes, going to switch. Yes. I'm going to switch on to another topic. Are you familiar with uh, microdosing? Um, yes, um, though I've never, I've never done it as a as a habit. I've been interested in it, and I've seen it come up. And every once in a while, 
you know, my wife and I would say to each other, where should we try that? And, uh, and we never quite got around to it. And I find it a fascinating subject. And I, I don't have a scientific opinion because it's really, there's been contradictory uh, evidence there. I know, well, you know more about it than I do, but they you know that recently they, uh, they tried doing it with a, you know, with a placebo, et cetera, and they weren't really sure whether they were seeing an effect, but I didn't think it was standardized enough that I could draw an opinion in terms of dosage. And I mean, again, something illegal. How does a, a legitimate researcher, you know, risk a career to um, to participate in something uh, like that? So that I, is, I don't know. What... That is the great question. What you just said. In fact, that 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 was somewhat the topic of of my last book called Psychedelic Medicine. Where I mm-hmm. inter- I interviewed the, the 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 most prominent researchers in the United States uh, doing research in psychedelics, and all of them had to go through hell in order to just be able to do the research during this terribly suppressive uh, period. You know, they risked their careers, their their livelihoods. They risked a great deal by by you know, like uh, uh, Roland Griffiths that did, did that that uh, uh, pioneering work with psilocybin at Johns Hopkins. I mean, yeah. he, he took a huge risk by doing that. Well, I mean, the reason I mentioned this, the microdosing is because I think it's going to have a, a large effect over time. And I, yeah. I, was, in, I was influenced uh, after reading, uh, I interviewed this woman, uh, Ayelet Waldman, who wrote a book called A Really Good Day. And she's a lawyer. She's, she's, she's married to a, a, an author, well, a famous author named Michael Chabon. And, um, she had bipolar or has bipolar for 20 years and and, and an attorney and and an intelligent woman. And she tells in her book, and she said on this program, how she over 20 years took everything in the pharmacopoeia that American psychiatry had to offer and nothing worked. And she was having one hell of a life. And then she heard about microdosing and she connected with uh, Jim Fadiman and, mm-hmm. uh, and got some consultation there. And she microdosed. Mm. And she tells the story of how at the end of a day, in retrospect, she says to her husband, I just realized that I had a really good day. <laughs> because microdosing, by definition, is sub J and D. You, you don't notice mm-hmm. the just noticeable difference because right. there, is, there is no just noticeable difference because it's micro. You keep it sub noticeable distance. Yet there is an effect. So I will share with you openly now on the program that I have since interviewing Ayelet, I've done quite a bit of experimentation uh, with microdosing. And it definitely has an effect, and it's definitely a positive effect. There's no mm. question about it. There's a, a sense of well-being. There's a sense of, of uh, refreshment. There's a sense of focus. Um, there's an overall, um, I mean, I already am living in gratitude, but if anything, it enhances my sense of gratitude. I would say, generally speaking, it enhances a great deal, you know, of what is already positive that I've been working on for decades to 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 inhabit. 
And uh, I, I think it has a, a, a great deal of, of future potential. I've also experimented, Dean, with going just a few micrograms above micro micro so that I could have a JND. I would notice mm-hmm. that I was on something. And I've done it very carefully by going from 10 micrograms to 12 or 13. And then there is a, 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 a tiny sense of feeling something in the system. But it's, it's, very, uh, it's very minor, and it certainly isn't a, even approaching anything uh, psychedelic or hallucinatory or anything like well, that. Well, that, that is um, as, as fascinating to hear you talk about it. And I, I, I have been inter- interested in, in that and have heard people say similar things that you just did. And I thought to myself, oh, my God. This, you know, the research establishment should drop everything and just launch, launch, you know, um, a, 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 a study and get to the bottom of it because you're lo- you're talking about issues that, well, two, one, people struggling like someone with bipolar disease and all of a sudden here's something that can help somebody that nothing else has as well as a whole new way of looking at existence and here's a little a little boost that is positive and can keep you know keep people at a level that you know before would be extremely difficult to to approach and, and yet we read last week you know the CEO of this big company admitted to microdosing and they canned him they fired him you know it's like he could he could drink himself silly and he'd be admired Yes, microdosing, and all of a sudden he's not capable. He like he started the company, you know, founder of this corporation. So we're, we're, it's funny we're at this 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 step. These will and these will be, I guess, the the next wave of the battle lines, you know, about about all this uh, all this stuff. You described that very very clearly. I I, I have to I have to say I I really understand completely. We, I, I closest I ever came, we used to call it a museum dose. That you could take a dose and you could, uh, you know, walk through a museum and make a fool of yourself <laughs> on, uh, on on LSD. I'm an art lover, and I, I and I had done that a few times, you know, knowing how to cut back. But see, it's nice to today, you know, to be able. Well, I don't know how you do that actually, uh, you know, to get down to where you know what the dosage is and what you have, and so you can at least have something to. Well, the tricky, to. yeah, the tricky part, of course, is. That since you're dealing with an illegal substance, how do you know what it is you have? But right. there are people who are who have been over the decades uh, making clean uh, uh, LSD, and the method that's yeah. used for creating a microdose is to take the standard uh, 100 uh, microgram uh, dose of LSD and cut it uh, nine times, so that you have uh, uh, 10 uh, micrograms. And so it's right. a, pr- it's a pr- it, yeah, it's a pretty easy, pretty easy system. Um, yeah. What do you see if it, in the at its most positive? What do you see in the future that psychedelic substances may bring us of of benefit? Yes, that's a that's a, obviously a sixty four dollar question. 
and it's at this particular point it's it's speculative you know i get impatient even with the current research you know like the, the mdma thing for instance you know there's more there's more wait 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 okay ptsd that's fine that's fine uh, but there's so much so much more in a therapeutic environment i mean if you think about uh well let's take that for instance um the problem we have as human beings in our relationships and how I you know I see I have friends. God, they're so perfect for each other. They don't know it, and they wind up breaking up and divorcing. I want to sit them down and, you know, find someone to um, administer, um, you know, MDMA to them yes. in a therapeutic environment. It can be yes. so so helpful. I, I've been there myself. Yes, I've been there myself. It's um, and, and it's um, so the the, the human uh, potential. Of uh, these variety of substances, and I don't know. By the way, would what would you is MDMA a psychedelic drug? I have I don't know how to classify it. I'm not quite sure it is in the classic sense, and yet there's certain feelings with MDMA that I've experienced with uh, psychedelic drugs also. So there's an overlap, and I you know I don't know enough neurochemistry anymore to make uh, make sense of that. Well, that's a good, it's a, it's a good yeah. question. It's really one of nomenclature. Uh, MDMA, in a way, is sort of halfway in between marijuana and LSD. I mean, you know as well as I, if you smoke enough marijuana, you can get cosmic and you can get, you know, yeah. pretty, pretty far out there, but it takes quite a bit of the THC to do that. Uh, right. you know, I, I would say it's a definitional issue, but, but, but let's just say they're all, I would say they're all in the, certainly in the same family uh yes right there because they they create uh they're, they're all mind altering no question but you could say right, the right. same thing you could say the same thing about the ssris that they're mind altering yeah. because they are um yes, I, yes. I'll, I'll tell you my my um my most hopeful uh wish for the psychedelics which is that they would facilitate our learning how to take volitional control of involutional processes in our system. Mm. And I'd like you to think about that and, and let's have a talk about it again in the future. Yes. Volitional control that, you know, of involutional I, processes. Yeah. I think you described, I guess what the, what my experience has been over time <clears throat> at the time when I, I was using it more. That's a, that's a very good way of looking at it. Not anything that I, I, what I wonder is, you know, everybody wants the magic pill. You know, I want to take it this morning and everything's going to be fine, <laughs> you know, for the rest of my life. And it doesn't work. You have to put in a little bit of thought, <laughs> you know, and, and interest and reflection. Um, I think for the long-term, uh, long-term benefits and I, I just owe the, uh, I feel the course of my life to these experiences. Uh, I took over, you know, I took over the driver's seat, you know, most of the time afterwards, of course, I don't want to be <laughs> high all the time, but, um, that is, you know, that is that combination. And, I, and I'm trying to imagine a, a world with a therapeutic environment where that's possible. Uh, because most drugs we have, we you, you we write you a prescription and that's it. The rest of your life, every day, you're going to be taking this. Uh, whereas with microdoses, a little exception there, but 
uh, that the psychedelic experience is something that requires, you know, reflection and, uh, you know, the ability to understand that you have to put something in also, you know, it's, uh, it's like you can, you know, you can watch somebody exercise, but you can exercise yourself. You got to put in, you got to put in a little bit of the, of the work. So yeah, exactly. that's very, th- very thoughtful. Very exactly. Thoughtful. By the way, uh, Jim Fadiman has collected, you know, thousands of, uh, of reports on microdosing and uh, what he's uh, reporting to us is that it shouldn't be taken uh, a, a second day or the third day after the first day that you should <clears throat> you should always uh, skip at least two days in order to let the neurotransmitters uh, uh, re- refresh themselves. Uh, rather, yeah, than- that's probably wise. You know, we've learned that one before, haven't we? Yes. And um, yeah, that makes um, that makes that makes sense. Yes, 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 yes. Well, I see we've been talking now for an hour and a half. It went by very quickly for me. Um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I, uh, we, have a, we have a lot in common, don't we? We do. And uh, I, I look forward to continuing. If, before we uh, finish up now, let's just uh, take a, a moment or a few seconds. A moment's a long time on radio, isn't it, as you know? Yeah. Uh, take a few seconds to reflect if there's anything that you'd just like our listeners to uh, to hear before we uh, say goodbye to them for now? Well, I would say um, keep the faith. Uh, keep the faith. And life continues, continues to get better and better and better. I wouldn't trade this current point. Many people just fear, you know, getting older. Uh, leave the wiser part out of it, but we do get wiser. And it's hard to avoid, actually, <laughs> as, you, as you wait sooner or later, it hits you. But I just think that uh, we are on just the beginning, just the threshold, just a threshold. So uh, think, uh, you know, on a, I, I just think we need to think positively and continue the, the nascent effort that we're seeing around the world where people recognizing that some of these substances are going to be very beneficial in ways we never could have predicted. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dean. It's been a, a, an honor and a privilege uh, having you today here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics and to be able to talk with you uh, this way. And, and thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics with special thanks to our producer, Charlie Deist, and our IT specialist, David Springer, who working together as a team really make this broadcast possible. Uh, the, this preceding program was brought to you by uh, the Thanksgiving Coffee Company of Fort Bragg, California. Uh, the founder of Thanksgiving Coffee, my friend Paul Katzif, is a social worker from Brooklyn and a political activist who has literally improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world by getting them some of the money that is made from selling coffee. Prior to Paul, they got hardly anything. Paul has created three special mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends. Soon, he's adding a CBD blend. Paul donates 20% of all internet sales of the three special mind, body, health, and politics blends to the COVID Response Network. Check it out on Google. It's a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID. So go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website, 
buy some mind, body, health, and politics coffee, and support the COVID Response Network, which is literally sparing injury and saving lives, as well as serving as a model for other community-based programs, health programs around the country. Please join me again next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.